This is the Power to Podcast, show 37. One example that I liked was just kind of changing the homework based on where you are in the unit. Um, to change up the homework at the beginning, it might be exploratory, just thinking of questions. It doesn't need to be that complicated. Um, in the middle, they're practicing. That makes a lot of sense. And then at the end, you're giving them an opportunity to apply it or make connections. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Ken Ehrman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here back with my co-host, Mr. Matt, misquoting Rogers. Matt, what's going on? How you doing? Misquoting? What do you mean by that? Well, for I think at least the second episode now, you have claimed that I stole your idea of teaching new technology with review curriculum or new curriculum with review technology and I was actually starting to think, I don't know that I've ever talked on the podcast about that strategy that I taught you. Um, so I want to I, I kind of nip that right now and say the idea of blending objectives was 100% mine. And although you're trying to be sarcastic, I don't know that anybody's going to pick up on that because I don't know that I've talked about my blending objectives strategy on the, on the podcast. So that's where you earned your, your nickname tonight. Very well. I think I deserve that one. So uh, I want to throw a question at you because this was a topic uh, we we talked about multiple times tonight with our our guest, Dr. Eric Youngman. Matt, do you ask your students for feedback, evaluate you, or do you ask them about their opinion, anything like that in terms of the way you operate your classroom? So the answer is yes. Yes. And I've tried uh, multiple different ways. I remember early on my teaching career, I gave the classic like grade your, I'm going to give you a report card. So you give me the teacher report card. And I got some incredibly great feedback from that. Some positive, some constructive, nothing negative. But what I realized is I had to wait an entire summer before I could take any of those ideas, those criticisms before I could actually put them into practice. And that was frustrating because I knew I wasn't perfect at my job. I wasn't even striving for perfect. I just was trying to be effective. And so I've tried different strategies this year. I'm trying something where we have a um, four different items and the kids have post-it notes in their their, uh, desks as an item. A school material. So if they have questions that weren't answered, if they have aha moments, if they have things or suggestions for changes that they might um, suggest, little things like switching your seat or uh, maybe how we cover a topic. Um, but there were what I've realized in in getting feedback from learners as we kind of talk about in this conversation is. Your audience needs to contribute their feedback because they're the ones receiving it. And they're going to give brutal and honest feedback, not in a mean way, but they're the stakeholders, whether they recognize it or not. So the more time that you power them up to have a voice in how a a lesson goes or a unit's going or maybe they want to be more creative maybe they want more structure it always leads to better instruction um it is it's vulnerable that's one thing i will say because you could sit there and say hey i have an observation ready lesson i've thought through every single question i'm going to ask and i'm a true professional i've got this all taken care of to get feedback from a nine-year-old and recognize that it's 
great feedback and to not be defensive is a challenge. Yeah, so uh, I completely agree with you, and um, I would do a report card too. When I first started, it was – I think I did it quarterly, maybe – I think I did a quarterly and it was just a, a piece of paper where it was like six questions on there. And I actually, I, I just found this about a month ago. I found all of my old report cards from my classes. And I just actually sent a tweet out about this, I think back in June, because it was from the graduating class in my district. And so I just found the picture. So I'm going to read some of these here. So the question was, what did Mr. Ehrman do this year to help you be more successful, please be specific. And some of the feedback I got was he worked with us in small groups to help us better. Uh, he gave a second chance on our math boxes. Um, another question was, how could Mr. Ehrman be more approachable? So I wanted to make sure that my students like felt like they could actually come talk to me. And uh, he could maybe give one more class to more class time to come to him at the beginning of class and at the end of class. So, you know, being more available. Uh, another one for what did you enjoy most? This one says, uh, I liked when you would kick the trash can during teaching. So <laughs> I don't really remember why I was doing that, but apparently they, <laughs> they found it entertaining. Um, so just, yeah, just being out there and vulnerable, you know, eventually I switched to using technology like a Google form or something, but just, Get, just give them an opportunity to share and it you find commonalities you might find that a lot of kids are identifying this as their favorite or that they like that you do this particular type of strategy and you might not even realize that it's connecting with students or you might do something a lot that they don't really like and yeah it sucks to hear that but it sucks more to keep doing that. Like, you know, you can really learn a lot. And, and Eric talks about that. Like, just listen to the kids, ask them for feedback. We jump into the conversation of homework, ask them how long it takes, make sure it's not taking them too long. So I really like that. He constantly talked about just asking the students for honest feedback. And regardless of what age they are, you'll get great answers. Uh, you'll get more entertaining answers possibly with, with first and second graders um, but, you know, really just open yourself up to make sure that you are creating the best learning experience possible because that's what we all want. And, and unfortunately, we might just not think to, to ask the students for, for their own advice or their own opinion. Is there anything that you want to add before we, we jump into that interview or on that topic, Matt? I think the other thing is, like most things, the first time is probably going to be the hardest time. You're probably going to get the most raw feedback. So if you can say, hey, I just listened to this episode and you know what, I'm going to try it. Recognize that if you listen to the feedback from your kids, the next time, as long as you actually were receptive to the feedback and you made adjustments, just like we ask kids to, to make adjustments to the feedback we leave them, it's probably going to be better and better and better and better because you're only going to improve your instruction. So if you are willing to take a risk, here's a dicey one. Asking your parents, can you and I both reach out to our parents at different time to get feedback as well? It's an incredibly scary um, opportunity. But one thing you'll notice is that when you give the parents a voice to share what their feelings are, they appreciate that opportunity and they don't use it to slam you. They may be frustrated because they were up all night helping a kid with homework and they shouldn't have felt that way in the kind of immediacy of, of having something ready for the next day. But when you have an opportunity and say, hey, you know what? You could have let us know a week ahead of time when there was an, a big assignment due. Or, you know, we went through so many recycled cardboard box i wish they weren't all over my house whatever the case may be you're getting quality feedback and it's only going to help the next group of kids and if you're in a district for long enough you'll probably have siblings and and the parents are going to recognize how you've made improvements um and, and it's just going to continue that progression and that growth mindset of, of being better every single day Absolutely. And, and to that point with, with communicating with parents in that fashion, you're going to get them on, on your side more and they're going to be more understanding of your mistakes. They're going to be more understanding of, 
of just the way you're operating your classroom and, and be on your side more and create that that team bond that you're really looking for. And, and like you said before that, if you're asking for student, if you're asking your students for feedback, you have to change what you're doing based on that feedback. If it makes the most sense for all or one of those students, maybe it's a change you can make towards one student, the way you greet them, uh, not calling on them if they don't have their hand raised, different things like that. But you have to make adjustments so the students see that you're actually taking their feedback. If you're, if you're not doing that, they're not going to give you honest feedback the second time you ask. And so they need to see that just like you would expect a supervisor to make those changes if, if they ask for your feedback um, as a classroom teacher. So our, our interview tonight is with, like I said, Dr. Eric Youngman. Uh, he's a really fantastic educator. Uh, he's serving right now as a, as a curriculum leader, and he just he brings a really refreshing perspective to that position. And so without any further delay, let's jump into that interview with Eric. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. We're really excited to have you with us here today. Uh, so how you doing? How you feeling? How's the beginning of the school year going? Awesome. It's the beginning of the school year. I'm a curriculum director, um, so I'm looking through that lens, but also I have three daughters who are starting 6th, 8th, and 10th grade, and I have a wife who's a speech pathologist in a school. So um, again, I get to look at it from a couple of different perspectives as we're beginning another school year, but this year, for the third year in a row, we're kind of impacted by that pandemic. Absolutely. So uh, I want you to officially introduce yourself. You gave us a little bit of background, uh, where you're coming from. And, you know, as a curriculum director, if you could just kind of give us a snapshot of of your career in stages and, and how you've uh, moved into that position. Absolutely. This is my 21st year in administration. So my role is is technically the director of curriculum instruction and assessment. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But um, kind of like Matt, I started as a fourth grade teacher, at least that's where my student teaching was. And then I taught first grade for four years. I was an assistant principal for four years. And then I enjoyed being a principal for eight years. And then this is my ninth year in this role. Um, basically, my focus is on the curriculum materials a lot at the beginning of the year. And we're going through um, different adoption discussions. But I really like to dig into the instruction. Um, because I think that's where the focus needs to be when we're talking about engaging students in learning um, and all those effective strategies where we're making connections. Um, but then also my role includes assessments and, again, trying to maximize that information that we gather um, and kind of minimize the time that we are, are actually assessing. Um, but again, anytime we can assess during the, process, the learning process, I think that can benefit the students and teachers most. Um, but in, in general, that's the, basically the summary of what I'm currently doing. Excellent. I think, I think Matt and I both love that you're an elementary guy at heart. This is, a, this is kind of a broad question, but if, if we could boil it down to something relatively simple, how would you say curriculum and the day-to-day -day instruction is, uh, it joins together you know, cohesively? Because as a classroom teacher, I feel like so often we, we feel curriculum is so far out there and a lot of it might not apply to us until you perhaps have had the opportunity to be involved in the development or the writing process, which I've had the opportunity to do recently in my own district. But where do you think for you know just a, a regular, maybe a newer classroom teacher, how does that curriculum play a part in the daily instruction that takes place in a classroom? Curriculum is very important and you can get involved in a variety of ways, but typically we really try to rely on the experts. And so if we look at standards that our state in Illinois has adopted, then we try to look at materials that align with that most. And that really just provides alignment with standards and it kind of gives us a guide of where we can go. Um, but the instruction, I mean, it really focuses on uh, the depth of questions. I mean, sometimes if you're just asking basic questions and that's what your curriculum resources has, um, then as a school district, as a school, as a grade level, as a teacher, you have to make some modifications to enhance that questioning um, so it's deeper level. Um, same with making connections. If you're just trying to teach social studies and you are following that book, that's one thing. But the way if you can make connections with students, if you can make connections with what you're also reading about in other classes, when you can make connections with the community, um, that's where really where you're going to bring learning alive. And I think if we think back to the teachers that we had and what we were learning, we usually remember those learning experiences. And in a public school, that cannot happen all the time. 
Um, but at the same time, we have to, again, make time um, to make connections. I was a pretty literal black and white thinker when I was growing up as a student, and I really needed to hear those connections because sometimes I didn't initially understand why were we learning this in a certain class. And as soon as I had that connection, then it made sense to me and I was more engaged in that learning. So again, the curriculum gives us a roadmap kind of driven by those standards, um, but really the how can be directed by the teacher. They can make those dis decisions based on what their students need. Um, you know, when you're looking at um, a fourth grader at the beginning of the year, they're very different than they are at the end of the year. Same with first graders. When they come in, they start their year, they're basically like kindergartners. They're, their reading and writing is very limited, and by the end, they're flourishing. They've made so much growth. And so, again, it's really connecting with your students, getting to know what their needs are, and then connecting and building off that the resources that you have. Eric, can I hit you with a, a pressing question? I've talked to Ken about quite a bit, and, and I would love to hear your, your view of things. Um, I think that, so in the last um, couple, a decade or so, obviously with the inclusion of things like Common Core and really the aligning of all learners to have across the country, uh, a, we'll say set level of proficiencies, every learner is able to read those type factors, has really influenced the curriculum side of things. And because of that, what we've noticed is higher level of our favorite word rigor in a lot of attributes, but there's also quite a bit of standardization and also um, almost um, scripting of every word that you could possibly say in a lesson um, in some of this curriculum. I already have an idea of what you're going to say based off what you just mentioned about how the teachers take the curriculum and kind of make it alive and, and really turn it into something. But what is that conversation like with your educators or other people at your position to figure out how you give the permission to allow the experts to do their job best? And that's a great question. I think a lot of it, again, is understanding what the stakeholders and the students in your community need, um, and then making sure you have proper professional development. Um, one example is right now we are implementing uh, bridges for math for kindergarten through fourth grade, and they have a very specific regimented, regimented training, um, but as we learn that, it will give the teachers more flexibility. So with a lot of things, I think you have to understand um, what are the priorities. Last year, we focused a lot on priority standards. If we're going to skip something, um, what can we skip, but what should we spend more time on? So I think it's, first of all, understanding which areas we should emphasize more um, as a grade level, you know, also understanding vertically what the other grade levels might have gaps or they maybe have previously introduced because um, I would just mostly focus that on what is the priority, um, what are the priority standards, and how can you focus most on it? Because if you understand what you're teaching and you understand your students and understand which topics you should spend more time on, I think that can guide it. Um, again, a lot of it is also minimizing the speaking. Um, I've been presenting and now I'm trying to ask more questions. I'm trying to connect with the educators that are in the room. And same with as a teacher, you can't be the sage on stage talking all the time. You need to put some information out there. Um, you need to understand and adapt and answer their questions. And then you also need to proactively understand what levels they're at, how you might need to differentiate. Um, how again, you might have that star student, you can't call on them all the time. You know, how can you prepare other students in advance to set them up for success? Um, how can you have different scaffolds in place? So I think it's really, unfortunately, it's a big job for teachers. Uh, but the more they can understand, the more they can build scaffolds and help their students and be proactive. Again, sometimes I, I default a lot on just those higher level questions. If you have a student who already understands something, you know, proactively have a chart in your room. Um, have a graphic organizer that has some questions that you can ask. And then if you model that, hopefully the students are starting to use that language as well. I think it's, I think it's so important. The way, the way you're talking about this is, is, is honestly the way every teacher would want their curriculum directors, someone in charge of what teaching and learning looks like in a district to be speaking, because you're talking so much about student focused, student centered learning and it's it's frankly it's very it's just very nice to hear from a person in your position to hear that from a from a teacher's perspective 
why do you think I, I don't feel like I've ever come across teachers when you have a conversation about I want I want it to be more student centered. I want my kids more engaged. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard from the curriculum curriculum level down to create and foster learning like that? And why is it so hard for teachers to facilitate learning like that? Um, you know, it's a style of teaching that I adopted that I was that I was a big fan of it. And it was a challenge to grow and to learn and to be able to facilitate in that way. And I know Matt does the same, but I I feel you have a much broader, bigger picture perspective where you would have worked with more teachers. Why is it so hard for us to, to just jump in and dive into that type of teaching and learning? I mean, a lot of it is the expectations of the States. There might be, uh, mandates, there might be standards of coverage that we need to get to, and then there's those accountability, um, which might be assessments. And so sometimes that drives it. Um, But I think in the end, like I said, the more we can understand our students, and again, I think for me, being a father helps. I think when my kids are talking, I'm trying to hope that they have some teachers that have empathy and get to know them because um, if you can just pull something out of them, I know I love sports. I love talking about sports. And so when I was a student, anytime I could write or connect with sport, sports, that's when I lit up. That's when I would go in depth and kind of be a little bit more talkative and learn more. And you can't do that all the time. But if you can do, for example, passion projects, however frequently you do them, give students an opportunity to follow through and learn about something that is really intriguing. And again, you can level what the expectation is based on the the grade level that they're in. Um, But again, the more you understand the student, that makes it helpful to make those connections. Um, And again, I think learning remotely was another reminder. A lot of people are talking about learning loss. But again, think of your students sitting in front of that computer, uh, you know, for six hours a day. So what can we do to engage them? Um, You know, we're talking about how can we make learning better? I hear it a lot. It's, It's a basic question. Ask the students. Ask them, how could we make this lesson better? Um, how could this homework be shorter and of more quality? Honestly, ask the students. They are brilliant. They'll give you feedback. Um, so again, I think the more, and even first graders, we've done a lot of different um, surveys in our school district. And if you ask the students, they have a lot of good information, a lot of good ideas. Um, it's really surprising how smart they can be. I think it's a, something that's even from our level, we deal with kids so frequently. And as Ken was alluding to, being student-centered and being teacher-centered is difficult. A lot of us came into teaching not knowing that we loved hearing our ways of talking, but we just have this natural ability of most of the teaching style that we grew up with was teacher-driven and less student centered. And it doesn't mean that we learned poorly or that we didn't have a great experience in education, but really taking a model of, we use our model. I, I think about it in relationships or friendships. We we modeled the environments that we were in. And that's the same thing as a teacher. You model what you were in. So I think that's a huge portion of really being purposeful behind student-centered beyond the fact that it's a ridiculous amount of work. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of work in addition to just, hey, I have the copies ready to go and I can drone on and hope that 70% of my kids remembered 40% of what I said. Um, And that's unfortunately a tough thing, which I'm sure is an uphill battle for you, Eric, in that position of saying, hey, I I know that I, I have to encourage educators to be the best educators, but I also have to recognize that they have to have a work-life balance. They also have to kind of strive and almost intrinsically be motivated to be a great teacher as much as what I do for them. It's a, It's got to be a puppet show. And I don't mean that in a rude way, but it's just like you're pulling strings very carefully to bring out the best. And you don't directly see the impact of that because you're leaving that teacher go or the students go into their classroom after you checked with them coming off the bus, that's got to be, A, a lot of faith in putting good practices and good curriculum in front of teachers, but also a a difficult thing to really trust. Can you talk about just what that's like and maybe how you tap into knowing that you're doing the right thing for educators and, and maybe some things that make what you do different 
to be as involved in the classroom as possible besides just looking at data all the time? Yeah, definitely a complex job. Um, I think I can probably relate, if nothing else, when I was principal, just leading by walking around. I learned so much about teaching and learning and students just by being in the classrooms. And I really tried not to um, evaluate at that time. Even now as a curriculum director at the beginning of the year, I'm in the classrooms and I just, I'm saying hello to the students, but I just wanna see what they're learning about, what they're writing, what they're thinking and connecting with them. So I think walking around and building that trust is very important. Another component is having different levels of leaders within your school district. And so we have instructional coaches and that's what Ken's job is as well. And I think if we can define what their role is, that's still a complicated relationship where a teacher is reaching out to that coach um, frequently. But at the same time, as we build that up, they can help the teacher. Um, just like when we're trying to teach a student about behavior, the more you can model for those teachers in different settings. Um, a lot of that time, that is the instructional coaches. Um, the more we can have teachers share out what they're doing um, to give ideas, if we can do one of our schools facilitates a walkthrough where the teachers are observing different classrooms. So I think the more they can see, the better. Again, I think it's built off trust. And again, just having some common discussions where they know that we're open to feedback. They can have input at certain times. Um, we're asking how we can help them. You know, you have to be able to read the room and understand um, how stressed they are right now. You know, the conversations might be, do any students have to be quarantined yet? Um, that's a very d different discussion than normal, you know, but right now we're going through these different safety mitigations because of COVID. So you have to understand that's what they're going through. Uh, right now we're implementing a new math program like I talked about. We're also implementing a new differentiation block. It's called win time, what I need. And so for 30 minutes a day, um, we will do two days of math, two days of literacy and one of SEL. That's another new component that we're trying to learn together and implement um, with our coaches and teachers. So if we're adding all these new components, you have to understand that that um, and the pandemic are gonna be pretty stressful. So, you know, we do talk about self-care, but like I said, my wife, um, she works in the schools and, you know, when she keeps hearing everyone talk about self-care, she's like, well, you know, let's just, <laughs> it's interesting. So I talk a lot about growth mindset, um, but usually when I speak about growth mindset, it's to the students, you know, how can they persevere um, how can they learn from mistakes? How can they understand the power of yet? So to me, I think trust is important when I'm talking with teachers. I kind of avoid that self-care discussion because of my role, but I think as I'm teaching them about growth mindset, I'm kind of on the side having them absorb that information as well. I'm not trying to change them. I understand you know, they have a stressful um, job, but at the same time, if I can focus on modeling that for the students, um, that has been pretty effective as well. So I think, and then when I just model that, when we're talking about a growth mindset, that's good about teaching and learning. Again, how can you learn from mistakes? Um, how, can be, how can we be resilient? How can we seek feedback? Can I just ask one follow-up to this? I think we always hear or think about recognizing um, when looking at data or feedback recognizing situation and child instead of just focusing on numbers. I think it's really easy for me to look and say, up, oh, I have this many proficient, this many below proficient, and that's flat. Um, whereas recognizing outside factors, inside factors, any of those features, what is that balance? And I think talking about growth mindset is a, a huge portion of it, but what do you do to, at what point do you draw the line and say, simply put, this is areas of deficit that we need to focus and prioritize on and uh, kind of, hey, we need to look further at what are some of the outside factors or things that happened in the school. Maybe there was a fire drill that went off, those type scenarios that you couldn't plan for, but you could almost associate as having an impact on the data. And there's a balance because we have some of our teachers and we're talking about a problem-solving team and sometimes they focus more on those discussions and the data. So we're trying to guide it a little bit more to the data because I think right now our teachers are cognizant um, of the different factors that students are dealing with. But I think in the end, it's, a, it's biggest challenge is if someone does qualify for special education, 
or math intervention or reading intervention, we do have those resources. I think your question is most pertinent when a student might not qualify. And I think I would then say that for those borderline situations, what other information you know, do we need to gather? Um, how can we try some sort of intervention to see if that is effective? Um, right now, another part of our focus when we're talking about that win time is just that tier one intervention from the classroom teacher. So along with the data, how is the classroom teacher changing some of that instruction in the classroom with that student and differentiating, and is that effective? So I think, to me, it's most pertinent for those borderline students who may or may not get services because we do want to be proactive with them. And again, another way to do that is um, near the end of the year, if you're dismissing other students, you know, can you at least work with a student for a little bit, again, just to understand um, if that's making an impact. But I think you really do have to be aware, again, being a father, I hope people are thinking that way for my children and just understanding how stressful families are. I mean, you know, my family, we're, we're over involved in sports. And so if it's not school, it's soccer, basketball, and golf, and we're just driving the kids everywhere. Um, but other families might have one or two working parents at night. Uh, you know, they might have siblings. They might be working with, living with relatives during COVID. You know, there's all these different medical needs um, so there's a lot going on, and so I think you have to have those good relationships with the students and families um, to help with some of those decisions because it can't be black and white all the time, and some of these families are in great need right now, and I think that's why it's a great question, just, again, talking through different ways they can support, different levels of support from different types of staff. Yeah, that's that's really powerful and important, and uh, my my school district, when I was still teaching fifth grade, we uh, my school in particular, we adopted the, the win, um, idea, same, same structure of two days, math, two days, reading one day, SEL flex, you know, whatever you needed to do with that last day. And if I could just speak from a teacher's perspective, um, at first I found it very overwhelming because you felt like you had another thing to plan for and you felt like you had to really target every student. And it, it felt almost more overwhelming to plan for, although that mindset actually helped develop me to teach more like that on a daily basis in all of those subjects. Um, but what I would just say, and, and you can decide if this is good advice or not to pass along to, to your teachers, is is think about the students that you want to target for that particular day and focus 90% of your planning on that. And then 10% of your planning on, okay, what is everybody else going to do? But then also from a bigger picture, have a way to track of who you're actually targeting, targeting that 90% on, because it'd be very easy to fall into only planning that that specific time to the same students over and over again so sometimes that that targeted time should be with your enriched learners that don't need remediation but they do need enrichment that involves the teacher and not just a challenge packet or an independent project but when i when i i guess gave myself permission to kind of think that way it 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 stressed me out less in terms of what i had to plan for yeah, the format I definitely agree with. Again, um, try to make sure you're interacting with all the students. You know, sometimes you do just focus on certain types um, of students. It's usually the struggling students, and hopefully this will help with that. Um, but I do really appreciate it. I like that 90%, 10% because it can be overwhelming. Um, there's a lot to focus on, lots of subjects. Um, and so, again, with within your role currently as instructional coach, we're having our instructional coaches help create some example target activities to kind of guide the beginning and then we'll seek more input absolutely so you, you kind of you you were speaking about the home life and the family life and the and the busyness of families and i i know you've written a book that I, I want you to mention and talk about related around the topic of homework and this was always a big battle in, within myself of what should be the purpose of homework what is good homework should there be any homework uh, there's a there's a quote behind me saying uh, I, I told this story before I was zooming in last year with a group of fourth grade students at the school I used to teach at so they were first graders when I left the school and one of them asked me they said Mr. Ehrman uh, can you tell us about how you assigned homework in fifth grade because we heard you didn't assign any so kids that were four years away from having me were were involved in this conversation and two two realizations I came to were one I worked as hard as I possibly could during the school day to avoid bringing stuff home. And and then when I started to realize and talk to my students about what their nights looked like, 
I would just think to myself, when can they possibly do homework and still go to bed on time, go to bed at a reasonable hour? So uh, tell us about your book uh, and just like where should we jump in on this conversation of homework and and what does it look like? Yeah, the book is called 12 Characteristics of Deliberate Homework, and it really focuses on when and if you assign homework, it should be reasonable, meaningful, and informative. And I can talk about those a little bit, but I decided to write the book because my school district was talking about um, homework. And so I was facilitating those conversations. In the end, what we created were belief statements. Um, but at the same time, my 10th grader was a 6th grader, and she was just bombarded with homework. So again, she's playing multiple sports, but at least two hours of homework a night. And so I added those up, and then I also talked with another educator who kind of um, empowered me to write and again, the focus is on reasonable homework. It should be reasonable completion time, complexity, and frequency. Again, it doesn't have to be every day. It should be something they can complete independent. And the completion time, again, it does not have to be that long. I think that's most pertinent when students have multiple teachers. Because if you just think, oh, you know, they just have 30 minutes of homework. Well, if they have three teachers or seven teachers, um, that definitely compounds quickly. Um, also, I think it should be meaningful regarding purpose. You should really know what and why you're assigning it. Um, it should be aligned with meaningful learning targets, the format, and the sequence. So with the format, again, it should be meaningful. They should understand what it was regarding the sequence. If you're kind of rushed for time and you didn't get through the lesson, it's okay not to assign the homework. If your students are not ready to work independently, if you have not made time for that guided practice, just save it for the next day. And then informative um, is, very empower, is very important just in general about communication. You need to properly communicate what those expectations are. You need to provide feedback during the learning process, not after. And then you need to have specific grading criteria. And so, again, I think the book has been very powerful just so I can facilitate um, conversations. I wrote it in a way as if I was presenting um, or professional development. So there's lots of slides and pictures and images in there, lots of questions, because what I'm really trying to do is empower reflection and change. And so, again, um, I was on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. And sometimes when the subject of homework comes up, you know, people are adamant. They're either saying never assign it or assign it daily. And so, again, as I was talking about it so frequently, I came up with, again, just the thought of when and if you do, let's make it reasonable and meaningful. Because, again, you can be very powerful with one good question. You can just avoid homework and just do great exit tickets. There's so many different ideas. Um, one example that I liked was just kind of changing the homework based on where you are in the unit. Um, to change up the homework at the beginning, it might be exploratory, just thinking of questions. It doesn't need to be that complicated. Um, in the middle, they're practicing. That makes a lot of sense. And then at the end, you're giving them an opportunity to apply it or make connections. So a lot of this, I really try to simplify some of the examples, and it's pertinent to high school um, through kindergartners. But again, it's just having teachers reflect, um, think, how could they make it better? Uh, back to, I think, Ken's um, statement, um, maybe it was Matt, just a bit about our teaching. We teach the way we were taught. And if we were always given homework, then we might start to think that way as well. So I just want us to, sometimes you need to learn different approaches and sometimes we need to unlearn them. So what practices might not be pertinent anymore, you know, just understanding your students. And same with remote learning, um, we could apply it just to independent practice. But at the same time, if the students are in front of the screens for six hours, do they also need an hour and a half of homework? So that's in general, that's that's the book, that's the focus. I guess uh, to kind of question or, or get your feedback on this, I guess there, Ken and I have often talked about how to include technology and, and we, Ken stole this from me, um, this great idea, but when learning new curriculum, you shouldn't also pair it with new technology. And when you're learning new technology, don't pair it with new instruction. So maybe you're doing a review or you're proving all that you've learned and you give the option to use a new technology. That makes sense. Not to overwhelm um, or on the other side, old information and old technology, you're not really benefiting. We've all probably had experiences when talking about homework where a teacher didn't finish a lesson and thought, oh, here's a way that I can kind of keep with my scope and sequence. I'll just assign whatever we didn't finish and hope that they got to the end result. We've all been in that situation 
which I know would probably drive all of us nuts. To kind of talk about that balance, you talked about maybe the the homework being different. Maybe it's review and practice, I think, of math and multiplication skills. The best way to really learn it is to just be involved with it. And that means maybe five minutes of practice on your own, not when you're learning multiplication for the first time. But there's also a thinking process or a creative process. As you were kind of saying, hey, I'm going to give you this guiding question. It was the first day of school today, and I, I left the kids at the end of the day with one question. You must enter the classroom tomorrow sharing a concept that you learned about today that you are so excited to explore further on the second day after you heard it. That can be it. But it doesn't necessarily need to be that practice. Can you kind of talk about the the balance? Because again, I I my current principal also had children that went through my classroom, and I used to assign a ton of homework, and she kind of politely gave me a heads up of how long it was taking her daughter. Um, there's a, a real truth behind a balance there. But especially newer teachers don't really feel like they have the permission to not keep up with maybe a more veteran teacher who can go through instruction more seamlessly. So I know you kind of touched on it, but do you have a philosophy or a general feeling, a guideline that you share with educators of how to roll out uh, homework um, and or just to bypass it if it's better that way? Yeah, I think in general, I mean, the parents need to be empowered and the students do as they get older to communicate with their teachers so they do understand how long it took them. You know, think of that student who is struggling in class. Well, if it took them twice as long to learn in class, now they're independently struggling at home. That's going to be probably three times longer. And so probably the two best examples are, you know, maybe differentiating if you're thinking of math, um, even for word study. So think of in a variety of levels where students who understood it could practice two problems. Um, people who struggled would get to easier problems, and then students who understood it, they could make connections or write a problem for their classmates. Another way I try to explain it is just different types of homework. So we can think of the practice where it might be um, math computation or vocabulary, but also give them an opportunity, not just in your classroom, to innovate, have them create something, have them um, think differently, have them explore. At the beginning, like I said, that's a great way to just differentiate at the beginning, having them explore, ask questions, and think. Um, another good thing is just communicating. So um, yours was an exit ticket, Matt, but same thing. If they just had to think of a question related to their learning that they will ask a classmate, and then as they come in, instead of talking to everyone, you could just have them pair share and talk to each other. It's another way to have the students talking. Um, but I think those are the best ways. Just think of different types of homework um, that you can um, provide. And then again, get feedback from the students. It doesn't have to be every day. Um, give them some choice and voice in things. I think that's very powerful. Even if you have three things you, you want to get done, you know, then maybe you say you have to do these two, and then you have a choice for your third one just to give them a little bit more ownership and input. Um, you know, it might be if you complete this, you know, then you have a choice. Um, but I think, again, just understanding the students giving them some choice. They still will be learning. They still will be applying it, but you just have to give yourself permission to treat the students differently, um, to give them you know, time away. Um, when it's an extended weekend, don't give them homework. You don't have to. That really should be a break. I mean, there's another book out right now, and I wrote one of the chapters for that. And I mean, this last week, and I'm sitting watching a soccer tournament the whole weekend. Um, other Other families are traveling, but you don't have to give homework if they have weekends, give them time off because if you want them to be engaged in your classroom, they need to be able to recover at other times too. And so again, to me, I just think it's that work balance. It needs to be quality and you just need to understand what's appropriate for your students and give them a break at times, you know, give yourself permission not to assign it all the time. A, a big part of what, what I would do in my classroom, a lot of times our, our, our week was based on uh, planned small group activities and structured independent work that they were working on, whether it be in, truly independent or, or partner projects that they're working on when they weren't in small group with me or whole group as a class. And 
it, it was scaffolded. It was it would increase in volume as the year went on for the fifth graders. And uh, the expectation was everything was due on a certain day. And their homework in that particular subject, this was for reading, was based off of that. And so we we spent a lot of time talking about time management, how to plan that out, how to work in class so that you have a little bit of homework, you don't have any homework. Um, and also, you know, having them discuss with the parents at home, like, what are nights during the week that I can't work on homework? And getting them to think about, well, I have sports on Thursday, I have string lessons on Thursday, or, you know, depending on family situations, like I have to go stay with dad on that day and I, it's a long drive or whatever the case is, getting them to think about that stuff so that they could effectively plan. But I would also proactively tell the parents in the beginning of the year, I never want your child to do more than an hour of homework. If they hit an hour and they're not done, you cut them off and don't let them finish because I don't want them working longer than that. So, you know, what's, what do you think is a good way to do that? Do you, is that something that you should be doing with your students using those strategies? Um, can you speak on that at all? Yeah, I think, again, you have to model and set um, an understanding of what they can do and what they should do if they're frustrated or can't work independently. Um, you know, give them permission to write down on it how much time they've worked on it. So I think it's really just modeling and teaching them in class. So that could be another reason to assign less homework at the beginning of the year, because again, you're teaching them what they can do. You're teaching them how to problem solve to be self-directed learners. Um, I think, again, just being cognizant of the differences for those students. If there's a couple of students who are struggling, what can you do different for them? Um, it is okay to give them less, and I think that's just what you have to continue to think about. Um, you know, the other thought is, again, just thinking about the other teachers that they have. So if you are just at an elementary school and you're the only teacher, I think it's going to be a lot easier um, because you know what homework they have. But at the same time, reaching out and communicating with other teachers in your grade level just to see what they're doing because you have one understanding, um, but they may have different thoughts about homework for math um, or for language arts. So again, I think it's really just communicating with others, sharing practices, sharing um, good opportunities and good assignments as well as asking specific questions so you can learn from them as well i think it's a, a really important thing and i and just that perspective is difficult because some of us as educators and i would imagine in the upper grades live in their field and so the most important thing is this home ec lesson that you're going to learn because you're going to be having to cook and clean the entire life so that's a a, a priority or math skills or, or ELA. Um, I was thinking as you were you were talking about the balance and, and what it could look like, that it reminds me of kind of in general curriculum, Ken and I, when you transition to student-centered, what you do is, as you were talking voice and choice or, or the ability to be creative, we always strove and, and really worked to create activities that the kids didn't dread homework. The classic uh, Frindle Nick Allen recording stuff from the dictionary for Mrs. Granger. I don't know if anyone else recognizes that comparison, but that was a punishment, but it was also something that was purposeful homework in that story. But if we've all had the situation where we get a call from a parent saying, my kid was up all night trying to do homework, got up in the morning, continued to work it. And I would say easily that that's way more heartbreaking that the kid put that much effort in than hearing that they didn't do it at all or the signature because it doesn't matter so much in the grand scheme. It's just way easier if they didn't get it that you write a note and I know that we need to focus on it. That's my role and the only way I can do that is if you communicate that. Um, but empowering parents to recognize that maybe I assigned too much or maybe I didn't pre-teach enough and it may be a teacher fault as opposed to a kid fault, which is a hard balance or pill to swallow as I'm sure a parent on that side of things. What is your way that you would have a conversation with a family or a teacher that chronically has an overvalue of homework that's creating some strain or challenge with their parent or family interactions? 
Well, I mean, the simplified answer is, again, I talk about having reasonable completion time, complexity, and frequency. And so that complexity one is critical. Um, I have my doctorate. I'm pretty smart. But my girls in middle school, their math starts to be challenging. My high schooler, I'm not looking at anything she's doing. It. She's independent. And so luckily my daughters right now are good students. They're doing very well. But for a struggling student, if the parent doesn't understand the context and truly can't help them, that makes things a little more challenging. And sometimes you do have the parents um, who are hovering and they're helping and the kid is so tired, they just do the homework for them. So whose work are you actually grading? And so that's why, again, for that reasonable completion time, the shorter almost the better because it is a challenge when you're teaching high school math and chemistry when you're trying to get them to understand all these concepts. But how can you make it a little bit shorter? Because a lot of the times, even during remote learning, students were asking my daughters for answers. Whose work are they looking at? And so again, as a teacher, when you're grading this, you know, was the father really smart? When you have those projects where you're building something, wow, the mom who's an architect made a tremendous project for the child who now got an A, but what did the kid learn? And so some of those projects are so amazing in thought, like this is something the child can do with the parent, but who's actually doing it? And what about those kids who don't have parents uh, around or what if they're working? And so it's just such a challenge. I think um, my district is very lucky, um, but we continue to have to think about those families who don't have the resources. Um, and again, for those children, they're going home. It's only for a couple hours, but maybe they're getting dinner, creating dinner if they even have enough food. So it's just so complicated when they're not with you. And so I think you have to more just be cognizant. How can it be purposeful in the classroom as much as possible? And then really concise homework at times, um, knowing that it needs to be completed independently. Um, otherwise, you're not going to get the correct answers you're looking for anyways. You've said it so many times, and I think it's so important to highlight about just talk to the students, ask them for feedback, ask them how, how long did it take? Just send out a quick survey, Google form, whatever you want, or just talk to them as they walk in. Um, it is a vulnerable place to be at as a teacher, but getting that feedback on homework specifically and your teaching practice in general, you know, you're going to spend 180 days with the kids, create an environment that they're excited to be in. If homework is a daily frustration, they're coming to your class angry, frustrated already every day, and it's only going to perseverate and, and grow from there. And so, you know, I, I love that you've said that multiple times. You do it in your position, you know, being at it as a district supervisor, but also as a classroom teacher, you know, just talk to your kids, ask them what's going on, ask them what their nights look like. And, you know, just, just be involved with them to know what kind of effect is the homework having? Is it actually increasing the learning in your classroom or is it increasing the frustration because the goal is to increase learning but it might not actually be happening if you're if you're not doing it effectively so and homework can damage reading as well i mean my daughters they would be reading all the time from k through fourth grade and now because of so much homework you know over the summer they do because we asked them to but they used to love reading independently and then when they're overwhelmed with homework, that's the first thing to go. So that's just another thought. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but that that makes total sense. What's the first thing they're not going to give up their you know, their sports or their instruments or their their extracurriculars that they're involved in. I mean, I teachers go through it too. You ask a teacher how many books do you read during the school year, it's usually a whopping zero. And we like to get a few of those in during the summer. So that's a really good point. It does it does take a huge hit on that. So I do want to be cognizant of our time, and I want to transition into our next section of the show called the Lesson Lens. And maybe this will be an opportunity to learn about Mr. Youngman as a, as a first-grade teacher. Um, if not, you can also share about a teacher that you've observed. Any way you want to take this, we're, we're excited to, to dig into it. So the first question, are we going to look at a unit overview, a long-term project, or a single lesson? So mine's a little unique. It's basically a single lesson. All right, to narrow down the grade level, uh, subject area, and if it would be uh, time of year specific. So mine was more basically as my role as a principal or even curriculum director, it's basically a read aloud. And so if I would read aloud to a class, a lot of the times I would look for a book. Uh, my focus mostly has been on growth mindset. So I might try to find books that talk about effort and attitude and resilience and then I try to ask them questions so they can make connections. And so 
I think to me, that's probably the most applicable at this point. Excellent. So uh, is there anything to add to the specific objectives of the lesson, or it's really just to facilitate the read aloud and, and to, to dive into the concept of growth mindset? As I continue to read books more to them, it's more about helping students understand and apply growth mindset. So again, with a lot of teachers and educators and parents who read to their kids, we try to incorporate a lot of questions and reflections. So again, the more we can have them make connections um, to what the characters are doing or how they're overcoming challenges, that's what I try to focus on. And then when I talk about growth mindset, some of the slides that I share on Twitter talk about empowering it via feedback. So what feedback could we give this child in the story or questions? What questions might we ask this character? And then finally, you hope to build it into self-talk. How can this student, based on what you've learned, how can you as a student now talk to yourself to kind of help you through some of these similar situations? Uh, so you kind of hit that point of um, what the students might be doing. Is there anything that maybe they're doing in addition uh, to having discussions um, actively during that lesson? Is there like a summative component or um, a, a goal at the end of it for students? It's usually just discussion. Um, the one challenge when I've done this, though, I haven't really found a book that I love yet. And so I'm in the process right now of publishing one. Um, about growth mindset. And this book right now, it talks about growth mindset. It has reflection questions, and then it has activities at the end of the book where they can build something or they can draw something um, that resonated with the, the story, um, or they can um, communicate with their parents and show their favorite lines from the book. Um, they can act out a favorite part. And so because I didn't see it in a book, I'm trying to create my own. But again, I think that's a way that we can model for our students. You know, we want them to have takeaways. We want them to have choice like we talked about before. And so anytime, again, you can read and then make that connection and have them apply it, um, I think that's going to be the most powerful. So in the end, like I said, I read some okay books I thought about growth mindset, but I wanted to come at it a different way. And so hopefully in a month or two, I'll be reading with lots of students in schools um, about a growth mindset and having these conversations because, you know, sometimes the takeaway, it doesn't have to be an assessment, um, but if they walk away with a couple of tools, a couple of questions they can ask, um, again, just understanding the power of yet. If they don't understand something yet, but they're a little bit more courageous, I'm really trying to build up the takeaways. So I think you just answered our, our second two or our last two questions, which is what is your role to ensure their success and and what advice would you have for yourself facilitating in the future, which is write your own book, which is, is really awesome. <laughs> Pretty good solution. So uh, just to, to throw a kind of different question at this topic, uh, teachers that know what growth mindset is, but they haven't done a whole lot with it in terms of incorporating into their classroom. Do you have any advice for them into just how to bring these concepts into their daily practice? Yeah, I think the biggest focus is on effort and attitude, but I think the more we can help students adapt to change, it's going to be the most meaningful. You know, I like to look through the lens of an athlete. And if you're learning a certain skill um, and you're frustrated because you're not getting it, if you're learning to ride your bike, you're going to persevere. You're going to keep listening to feedback and you're going to keep trying to get better. And so how can we apply that in the school? Um, we need to seek feedback. Anyone who's giving us feedback, be it what we just learned from the experience or from adults or from kids, how can we listen um, to continue to get better? We have to have that culture that making a mistake and trying your best is okay, and then let's continue to try to make it better. So I think really resilience and that whole effort and attitude are the biggest components. Uh, my daughters are athletes, and I really don't talk about how good or bad I think they are. I talk about their effort. I talk about what did you learn from the other team? It's fine if you lost the game, but did you see how well they passed, um, how well they practiced on shooting? So I'm always about learning. How can you just focus on keep getting better? Um, I, let's not focus on being competitive. I don't need to be better than anyone. I just need to be better than I was yesterday. So that really focus on continuous improvement and that correct attitude. You know, even if you have a really bad day, encounter a really struggling situation, yeah, you can be upset, but let's let's move on from it. Um, it's just a small part of your life. What can we do 
um, to continue to get better. So really effort and attitude are the biggest parts, uh, but just that continue to improve and learn from others. I, I, I recently heard a, uh, an athlete uh, in the Philadelphia area talking about trying to be at minimum 1% better today than yesterday. Um, and it doesn't mean that in 100 days you'll be 100% better. It just means a take at least one step further than you did before. And it adds up. It's kind of like savings. If you start stashing away, it builds up without you even recognizing. But that power of yet and the growth mindset, especially in a social and emotional time, challenging time, is so important that I think... Uh, not just saying, hey, I had a conversation about growth mindset, but putting it into practice in the classroom and first by modeling it as an educator is a really important thing. So I thought what you shared is awesome. And even just like that progression journey where you might be curious, you might put in a lot of effort, but then you have a challenge or you're fearful and you kind of regress. But in the end, you're, you're continuing to make momentum. And so the more we can look at characters in a book to understand the struggles they went through, um, the more you can reflect about the challenges you encountered in math. Think about your struggling students. We need to talk about it with them, but think of your highest learners. They are so smart. They're always successful, but when they encounter a challenge, how can we make sure that they are successful? Because we need to build that up so once they're outside of our classroom, they have the confidence to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you highlighted that. I would I would uh, talk about study habits and how, you know, what are ways to prepare for tests and things like that. And I would say to the, the high flyers, I would say, you could probably not study for a single thing this year and get 100%. You might be able to do it next year when you go to middle school. You might be able to do it in high school, but I guarantee you, you will all reach a point where that will stop working. And if you don't pay attention now and develop the habits now, you're gonna have nothing to fall back on. And so I actually had a student He's probably about a he's probably a sophomore now. Reach out to me and say, uh, he said, Mr. Ehrman, I hit that point. I finally needed to fall back on those study skills uh, because I couldn't just fly by anymore. And so, so that growth mindset, like you said, is really important on on both ends of those of those spectrums. So, our last section of the show is called the exit ticket. Same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one. What is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Just connect and understand them as a person so they can continue to understand what they need and how they can be inspired. That's perfect. What is the best advice you've ever received? It could be from a colleague, a supervisor, or potentially uh, a student, which would be very interesting from this conversation. Um, that one's difficult. I think sometimes the best advice really has been when I've been told no. Um, I might have, it might have been a challenge for me, but then I just looked at a different direction and a different solution. So I don't think it's been really any specific advice, but I think some of the times where I had to struggle the most, that's when actually it's turned out to be the best. Very interesting. So the school year goes in waves. Uh, we have, especially from the teachers end, the stressful times of report cards, conferences. Uh, when, when teachers are feeling burnout and, and stressed in those moments, what is something that you can say to them to help them power up? I think the biggest thing is just connect with your family and take time um, and understand that you have other things in your life that, that you can focus on that needs your attention. Um, and then at the same time, understand what the needs are of your students. But I think it's just, you know, understanding they need to have that self-care um, and make sure that they are strong. But at the same time, understanding that just as much, you know, those students need them to be engaged and be there. So I think it's that balance of, you know, we need them. We understand the hard work that they are doing. Um, but let's see how we can do what's best for our students. And lastly, um, you mentioned uh, having uh Social using social media, uh, really, what are the best ways the audience can connect with you um, going forward? Right now, you can connect with me at Twitter at Eric underscore Youngman. It's E-R-I-K Youngman, Y-O-U-N-G-M-A-N. And then next week, I'm going to start my own website um, because now I'll have a couple of books out there. But Twitter, I'm very active, so please reach out to me on Twitter. I like to interact with educators so I can learn from them and continue to share ideas of what I'm passionate about. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. Looking forward to that book by all means. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we will uh, we'll link to everything your your social media handle when that website comes out. You can you can shoot it over to us and and your books as well on our website, which can be found at powereduup.com slash show thirty seven. Uh, and we'll we'll have all that there as well as some highlights from from uh, tonight's conversation. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. This is this has been a lot of fun. I was I was looking forward to some of the topics that uh, we we hoped we would dive into when we when we met a couple nights ago to plan out this podcast. And uh, and I just want to say from a from a teacher's perspective and an instructional coach's perspective, your district is very lucky to have someone that. Uh, clearly knows what they're talking about, has has ingrained themselves in education, but also is thinking about everybody's perspective, the teachers, the students, the families, and really you seem to be approaching curriculum development and instruction from a, a place of empathy, which I think is the most important attribute you can bring to a school district. So they're very lucky to have you as a part of that organization. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, thank you for everyone that's listening and watching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. And we will, uh, we'll see you next week. So Matt, why don't you close down shop for us? All right. As we power down this episode, Eric, you left us feeling powered up. Hope everyone has a great week as we get into the beginnings of the school year. Stay happy, healthy, and we'll talk to you next week.